Stand by. The vacuum tubes are warming up. This is a special live broadcast right here on Georgia Radio. Well, once again, you have made it to the Georgia Folk and Farm Life radio show here on Georgia Radio, georgiaradio.com, brought to you by Meat Brothers Cattle Company. And y'all just pay no mind. Conway has decided to go crazy right here when we start the show. He's down here chewing my hands off. I'm having to fight this little wild child, so bear with me. And I but, apologize uh, yeah, back- to your listeners because they've already missed the best stuff. We've been talking about a one-legged <laughs> pulp water. Uh, we've been talking about Gooch Hill. We've had all this great stuff going on before we get yeah, into tonight's show. And, off the air stuff, yeah. yeah. Goodness yeah. gracious. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> you got to tell, tell the story about the one-legged pulp litter just real quick. Because... I can't. His, his children, I know that his kids might be listening. <laughs> <laughs> the, the punchline to the joke, though, was that they were they were short on a load. Yeah. And they throw his leg on oh, stop. his load. Stop. I made that part up. Well, I hope. And, uh, I hope. I I hope if any of those families listening, they'll bear with me on that and laugh about it. <laughs> Happy New Year, by the way, Wade. And to you and and uh, our guest tonight is, is a our one of our favorite guests uh, to have on, and appreciate him coming on tonight. It's Chris Adams, so, CB Adams, as he is on Facebook, but he's Turtle Man Chris. Chris Adams, a young man that's a wealth of knowledge and he's an old soul old pioneer and cracker soul in a young man's body and and uh he he has a very varied life and lifestyle and and uh he's committed to learning and teaching those two are important a lot of people learn but they don't pass on that chris has has made it his life's work from an early age, to learn as much as he could about the old ways that our pioneer cracker ancestors lived, and then to pass it on. He's worked as a as a guide at Oki Finoki. I know he's a lot about that, and and the, the old livestock and farming methods, the, the way houses and outbuildings were built, and uh, animal husbandry, and the hogs and the cows and things, and the crops that they grew. And um, so Chris is just, um, he's impressed us all with his, he's working, I think, now you're at General Coffee State Park. Is that right, Chris? That's right. Yes, we're over here in Coffee County again. And it's a place made for you, ain't it? It is. It's a custom fit, and uh, I fit right in out there. Right now, we're trying to get some cultural and interpretive programs going again, and try and draw people out to the area, but also to understand the area, the people that live there. Right. I, I want to mention, um, I posted a while ago that uh, Jonathan Olive and Randy Olive, if, if you've been a member of this group long, you know them. They're administrators and friends of mine. And, and Randy, one of the co-founders, of the big co-founder of this group. And their Uncle John Scott, their great Uncle John Scott, passed away Sunday and will be buried tomorrow and they will be pallbearers. But Mr. John was somebody I wish you could have met, Chris. He loved making syrup. And loved, he was a font of knowledge. He's one of them old timers that he loved to find some young person that liked to listen. And he was great to talk to, but he was better listening. He's the one that gave me one of my all-time favorite quotes. He said, he was, Jonathan brought him over here to visit with me last year. And he told me, he said, we were talking about people always chasing something that they never got. He said, Wade, I've learned that more good will overtake you than you will ever overtake. And I, I just love that quote, but I just want to mention that Mr. John passed on, and and uh, people keep him, keep that family in in, in your in their uh, your prayers for him, please. Say that one more time. More good, 
more good will overtake you than you will ever overtake. How about that? I just that, that, to live by right there. Yeah, I just uh, yeah. We were talking about. Uh, I'm saying he's sitting right here on my across from him, love seat over there. He and Jonathan, his nephew, and and we were talking about people changing jobs, moving, never staying, sat, not being satisfied, and chasing that elusive something. And he told me that, and I, that has stuck with me, uh, and always will. As long as I live, I'll remember that quote. And I remember a lot of things Mr. John uh, told me, but uh, that was one of my favorite things that just uh, meant a lot. But anyway, just want to mention that and, and a shout-out to the family and, and what a good good man uh, Mr. John Scott was. But uh, you speaking of making syrup and stuff, you, uh, that, that has just passed. You do that too, don't you, Chris? That's right. So this year, it was kind of a – a highlight for me, I actually made it myself, aside from wow. what my family does every year. Right. The last several years, I've been going around from Folkestone all the way here to Coffee County, just visiting with old timers who still do it the old way, and even those who do it a new way. You know, there's right. a bunch to learn from folks because it's craft. There's a certain science that you just can't get into it and expect you're going to make syrup. It ain't like putting muffins in the oven or something. That's right. You Dana, definitely got to work on it. There's a, there's a, uh, the thing about, I've never made syrup, but I have watched a lot be made. And I, I used to watch the old time. They would, uh, a lot of people use gas now, which is fine to fire their, their kettle. But I remember so many that used to, they would hunt up old cat faces, long ones, and old hard pine lumber and fence posts. And the longer, the better. And they would, the reason you want them long is you can feed them in there and pull them out. You know, if it got too hot, you could reach just the part of it was sticking out of the furnace, so you could just pull it out and back the fire off, push it in as it needed heat, and regulate it that way. Where if you throw the wood in there, you can't, it's there. It's going to get as hot as it's going to get. You can't regulate it with short wood. Do you ever know that? Well, see, that's another point to make right there is just cooking on wood one thing, cooking syrup on wood a whole mm. other ball game altogether. That's right. That's right. Compared to gas, where you can regulate it more. Those right. old-timers knew exactly how to work those fires. Yeah, I've watched some, you know, big kids, they'd say, pull that pull that out a little bit, and they'd just keep it, and they'd keep that temperature regulated. It was like those old women that cooked on the wood stoves, and some of the wood stoves had, had heat indicators on most didn't and those they could bake cakes and but they make biscuits whatever they want to fix they it was just they were intuitive because they had done it so long and the same with uh and i've mentioned before one of my favorite parts of old ways of things about making syrup is the, the when it was getting close to ready it usually be a several old timers and they'd all start conversation would stop when it was getting close to time because that you had to you, you know you got to dip it up at the right time, take it up. And uh, when it starts, I know you've heard me use this term, and you've heard, probably heard older older people use flecking off. You take the um, the skimmer and dip it up and watch it pour off. And when it, when it went to dropping off in sheets instead of dripping, you know what I'm talking about? Uh-huh. And it was getting hard kind of. And the way it flecked off, they would use, that was old-time word, fleck. You don't hear that word, but they meant flake, I guess. It was fleck yeah, off. Yeah, not when it flake. To, it definitely it fleck. Flecked fleck when it would start to fleck off and break away instead of just running as a liquid start to break away it was ready and uh it, it, two or three would say it's ready it's flecking off wait there it is right there and they would it would be time to take that syrup up and how long from start to finish from the boil not from the the grinding and everything else but when you put it in the pot and you start cooking it down how, how long are we talking chris or wade 
Well, I mean, as far as your cooking, that also varies from kettle to kettle. Some kettles be 50 gallons. Some go all the way up to 80 and 100 gallons. But typically, I think for most with a 60-gallon, that's about average size right. for a family or a community. They cook for about three hours. And okay. in about three, three and a half hours, you could expect syrup to be in a bottle. But that's that's you, great because it was a community event. And, I mean, that that's what I was trying to gauge here. How much? Well, you know, Chris, it, it, a lot of people still make syrup, but you don't get the turnout. I, when I was a boy, it was still – that era, the end of that era where people were starting, we didn't have, TV was around, but not like it is now. You had a couple of stations, but people love going to events like uh, syrup boilings, and there would be crowds at night there, old people and young people. And young people be out in the dark, some of them courting, and some babies is conceived <laughs> back in the, behind the syrup house. It's it, it funny boiling. how about nine months after the <laughs> time, there are a few more kids running around. Nine months after syrup boiling. But, um, that that is true, and uh, the uh, the old people sit around there, and I've seen them old syrup houses. It'd be at night, it would start raining, and and there'd be so much steam in there. Have you ever seen that? Where it start precipitate mm-hmm. out, oh, and yeah. it'd be yeah. sticky rain. It would start dripping, and there would be a cloud up inside, the, and you'd be sitting down in there, and right above your head was a pure like fog, and it would start dripping, raining water, and it was sticky, and. Uh, the old people loved to sit. They were crowds that come to just just to be together, and not just to get syrup, not just just to drink cane juice or chew cane. And of course, we loved to go around the edge. If you if you was good, you got to take some pecan halves with you, and, and use those to scoop that syrup candy off the edges. And uh, that syrup candy covered pecan is good. If not, you just cut off a strip. Your granddaddy, somebody would take his knife out and cut you off a, a little strip of cane. Uh, Right there off the off a piece of cane, and you would use that to, to scoop the candy up with and eat it off that like a, on a stick. Now, you know, talking about the, the vernacular there, the cane candy, I've heard it called dog candy. Uh, but more recently, I heard someone refer to it, actually a couple of people refer to it as polecat. I'd never, I've never heard, heard that. that. I, I hadn't either. Yeah, I've never heard that either. That that, but you know that, that, that that's goes a great to show the differences in the region here. Even though it's you know quote the wiregrass region down <laughs> here, right. you break it up into layers. There's different layers. There's different communities, and each one of those communities right. may have different sayings and words they use. That's a well, great I, idea, I, though, to do. You know, we we need to have a Georgia folk and farm life syrup cook syrup. Boil. Yeah, we would. Yep. It, uh, that reminds me, changing the subject, Chris, did you see my post today about rolling the sweet potatoes to get the poops out of them? I, I saw it briefly before I went into work. I didn't get to read it, but please, please do enlighten yeah. us all on that. Uh, we, I also read where Miss Rue said that she knew it was a thing, but she didn't do it. I thought everybody, I was really, Judy, uh, a lot of times in the mornings we talk on the phone, and she were, I, I don't go on facebook during the day when i on my phone when i'm at work i come home and get on my computer so i from the morning when i leave to go to work early in the morning till i get home in the evening i don't see it and so judy will read the uh we'll be talking in the morning on the phone and she'll go online and read me some of the comments and tell me the, how the responses are going so i told her you know i said she read it she said oh ma used to and her daddy her grandmother and daddy used to say the same thing and i've heard that all my life and i thought everybody had heard that. I thought all country folks in little Jordan, they're the old, you know, t- wives tale that you roll sweet potatoes back and forth on the table or the countertop. 
or tabletop before you bake them to roll the poots out of them. And we, it was, I was shocked at how few, most people on Georgia Folk and Farm Life said they never heard of it. Well, how how long out. do you have to roll a, a, just a, little, a sweet yeah, potato it, to it get It doesn't the, work. It's just a well, little, how do you I've, know it doesn't work? I mean, it, have well, you, you haven't tried it recently. I've done it. Yes, I have. And I can tell you, it's just, a, it is, but it's just one of those old jokes that people told over the years. And, um, but I thought everybody had heard that, and most people had not. That Had you, Chris, ever heard that? Admittedly, I had heard it, but I can tell you, I can guarantee you, I ain't ever done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this last party we had, let me tell you, I wish somebody had. Oh, oh man, my that's gosh. Funny. Yeah, there's... Now, oh. Chris, another thing this morning I posted about was uh, sheep and geese, uh, two things that people you think of uh, raising sheep and eating sheep uh, mutton and, and lamb as something a northern thing, a Yankee thing, but it was very, uh, very much a southern thing in our region of Georgia and Alabama, North Florida. People used to in the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds, mm-hmm. uh, they raised sheep to get the wool and they ate them too. And the same, they they kept geese to pluck them, you know, for the down to, to stuff pillows, mattresses, and things, and coats, whatever. And uh, most people didn't know that. Well, it's funny you posted that. Uh, in fact, just a couple of days ago, I was having this conversation with some visitors to the park. I was out there. We have Gulf Coast sheep, and there's two types of land-raised sheep here in the Deep South. Down in Peninsula, Florida, you have the cracker, the Florida cracker sheep, they call them. But up here in the Gulf Coast states and uh, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, we had Gulf Coast sheep, or what they call native sheep. And they were here by the tens of thousands. In fact, if I recall, it was probably the 1850s, there were some families in Irwin County that had upwards of seven to 900 sheep of their own. Wow. wow. Now, most farms here, and again, middle of the 1800s into about 1880, most farms didn't have quite that many. If I recall, one of my ancestors had anywhere from like 75 to 100 sheep. But that's majority of what they were used for was just wool production. Right. Like you said, a few families did eat them. But the way it fell in Georgia is there was a time when there was an abundance of sheep. By the 1880s, their market starts to fall off, and it only picks up again right around the end of World War One, and then crashes again after World War Two. And yeah, after World War II, there's very few. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, it's only yeah. been the last 15 years that I started seeing sheep around here. Mm-hmm. When I was a boy, Mr. Benny Ehrlich owned a big farm. He was a merchant, local Jewish merchant here, and he owned a big farm out in the country out here on the, in the earliest place it was called. And he had a big pecan orchard, orchard out there, and he kept sheep in that orchard. Now, that was he, he came over here from, from uh, I think, from Russia in the early 1900s. And I guess it kind of his heritage in Europe, you know, keeping sheep. He was the only one that had sheep back then. But I used to love to see that flock of sheep out there in that pecan orchard. I, I, even as a boy, I thought that was, you know, a beautiful wow. pastoral scene out there. One of the more interesting stories I think I've heard pertaining to sheep in South Georgia happened in May of 1865. So historically, they sheared sheep around the month of May. There was this lull between planting and harvesting time and getting into the summer months. They were going to shear them and be done with it before it got real hot. 
Well, this particular morning in Irwinville, Georgia, Jacob Colt and some others in the community had gotten together to go hunt deer that morning. When they got back, they were going to go shear sheep. Well, it was in the pre-dawn hours that they heard heard some shots up the road ring out. And hmm. they waited. They listened. Before they got started shearing sheep, you know, they had all their rifles and hunting bags and powder horns nearby. Well, by daylight, a federal patrol shows up in the yard asking for provisions. They sort of had a stare down and the federal patrol went on their way. But they come to find out that that federal patrol was part of two cavalry detachments that had captured the Confederate President Jefferson Davis in Irwinville. Wow. But that, that happened around sheep shearing time. Huh. Now that's incredible. I didn't know that. We better, right, hey, we better take some notes real quick. Ta- that Wade didn't know something. I didn't know that. Quick. Never heard of that. All right, it's yeah. time for a break. We've got to take a break, and we'll come back, and we're going to talk about Chris's dog. Yeah, that 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 new uh, puppy, young puppy. New puppy. All right, you yep. want to you want to you want to read the commercial, or you want me to play it? I'll just play it. Play. It. I don't Hi, have this is Wade Peoples from Georgia Folk and Farm Life Radio. I'm here to tell you about Meeks Brothers Cattle Company, and you don't have to worry about supply chain issues or where your beef comes from. Do what I do and call Meeks Brothers Cattle Company today. You can get a whole, half, a quarter, any amount of beef you want. Good quality beef. Vacuum packed. Lasts up to three years in your freezer. It's grass-fed, grain-finished, made to order. Visit Meeks Brothers Cattle Company on Facebook today and tell them Brother Wade sent you. And that's Meeks Brothers Cattle Company. Thank you. Georgia Radio. Good company and great country. Well, we're back again. We just heard from our uh, me talking about Meeks Brothers Cattle Company, which uh, some fine people and some fine beef. It doesn't come any butter. And they're yeah. selling it in different weights now, so you yeah, can you can get. You've always been able to get a whole half quarter, whatever. But now they've got uh, like twenty-five and fifty-pound boxes, and I think that's very popular. They've got a new website, so hunt them up on uh, Facebook or just Google Meeks Brothers Cattle Company, and. Uh, you, you you won't find any better beef. Yeah. I promise you that. Nobody well, uh, beats beats meats, meats, meats. meats. That's right. Um, now, uh, Chris, I I, I see you. You got. I I never. You know. I, I wrote about it the other day about curves and feist. A lot of people just think those are terms for mixed breed dogs, and I used to think that. But one of the finest dogs uh, I I inherited a, a dog that was a mountain cur and ladybug. She's fabulous dog and she lives with a friend of mine now because she fell in love with him and wouldn't come home so i said well that's where she needs to be so uh <laughs> she's living a good life there at uh with randy but uh, uh i found out that that's some those are some beautiful fine and really smart dogs and you have a black mouth cur which is a is about as southern as you can get ain't it that's right. That is, if I had to pin the title on any any dog down here, that is the cracker dog. It's a cracker dog, yeah. A lot of people see those dogs and not uh, don't recognize them as a breed, but uh, what's, what did you name yours? I named her Ada. Ada, I like that. I knew it would be some good name like that. I like it's a good name. Um, you have to bring her sometime to visit with Conway. Absolutely. I have to bring her up. I've been poking her around with me wherever I go, in the woods or even the work, she helps me feed up on the farm. She's learning right quick, like. 
they are smart. They will want to, but, uh, uh, talk about the curs, uh, you know, like I say, people think that a cur dog is a slang for just, you know, for a mixed breed just, or a feist being a little mixed breed dog. And they're not, those are particularly uh, a breed of dogs that are used for squirrel hunting and stuff. But the, the curs are an old breed and, and they were bred for definite uh, reasons. And people kept them and depended on them for what? Now, First, let, let's go back to the history of these dogs, where they originate, because it, it's kind of a foggy origin story. We know that these dogs came out of the mountain south. Their ancestors did. But some of their ancestry may be linked to the, the yellow dogs, wild uh, Carolina dogs, or Dixie Dingoes, they call them. They've been on the Cecilia River Basin, or excuse me, the Savannah River Basin for upwards of the last 14,000 years. That is the original dog to the southeast, and it's believed that they may be descended from early native dogs by the indigenous people that live here. And then some also chalk it up to some of the early war dogs brought by the conquistadors like DeSoto breeding with those native dogs. Whatever the origin actually is, we know by the early 1800s that these dogs were being cared for and reared on farms all across you know, South Georgia, down into Florida, into Alabama, Mississippi. And one of the more popular lines of blackmouth curs bred today is done so by the Ladner family out of Mississippi. But Ada, I went down to Micanopy, Florida, and got her, and she's out of a line of curs that have been bred for generations there in north-central Florida. But, I mean, she's a wonderful dog, but her kind, they were raised specifically for stock-tending, they're good catch dogs, good working dogs, and they're excellent hunting dogs. And they're great at following commands once you work with them just a little while, actually. Well, if he, I've, I, you know, uh, there's the mountain cur, which Ladybug was, and and there's so. But when you see a picture, if you've never, if you don't know what we're talking about, just go to Chris's uh, Facebook page, and I'm sure you you there's pictures of her on there, right? Oh, yeah, she's on there, and then I posted something on the Wiregrass Project page the other day about blackmouth curves and explained a little of the history there. But if you, if you, when you, if you, if I'm talking to the, the listeners out there that say, well, I don't know what a blackmouth cur is, you think you don't, but Google it, look over there, and, look, and when you see these, you'll say, well, I've seen those dogs. I didn't know that. I thought it was a mixed breed, but it's not. Those are a distinct very, as you say, very old breed of dog and uh, an impressive, uh, well, so. I was having this talk with a, a friend of mine the other day about uh, the types of dogs that the Creek Indians would have had. And there's, there's quite a bit written on that, but you just said something, Chris, that was really interesting. You said uh, uh, part of the lineage of that breed might, might very well be from some of those old Native American dogs. And oh yeah, that it makes you wonder, doesn't it? What would have happened to those if now extinct breeds? If you take a look breeds? at a picture of a Carolina dog and compare that to, say, uh, any of the curs from the South, look at that curled tail and that long snout, those high pointed ears. I mean, it, it's uncanny. Some of the resemblances there. Yeah, well, that's great stuff. I'm glad you're well, doing that. Chris, uh, what now? We've got a few minutes left, not too long. But now I want you to talk talk about something that maybe is of interest to you that you're work, interested in right now, working on, hoping to do. Just 
talk to us about something that's going on in in your uh, corner of the world down there. Well, I'm absolutely excited for spring. I ain't much of a winter person. I appreciate <laughs> it, but I love spring. I love yeah. the fall when I can get things in the dirt and start planting them. Because that, that's kind of like my canvas. An artist has his canvas. Well, farmer has the, the bare ground, and you got to do with it what you can and see what comes of it. And I've got my hands on a few more heirloom seeds, and I'm sure y'all will hear about those in the future. But we were talking about the sheep and the geese. I'm, in fact, trying to get a hold of some of the last uh, Gulf Coast sheep. That Their bloodline is from the state of Georgia, eight sheep. And they oh, come man. out of Turner County. They've been from Turner County since the 1870s, I believe. Mr. Johnny Johnson, the former director of the Museum of Agriculture over in Tifton, that was his family. So oh. I'm hoping in, in the next couple of months, maybe I can get one of those and breed them to some other Gulf Coast sheep and sort of establish my own line, raise the farm. And I hope sometime around April to go up north to North Georgia and bring back some cotton patch geese. Those were the historic geese that were reared here in South Georgia. Well, that makes me, Chris, my grandpa was born in, my maternal grandpa, my daddy's daddy was born in 1894, but my maternal, my mama's daddy was born in 1901, but he told about, the, they had some of those old geese, like, those, like you're talking about, and he said they would, they had a path from the house down to the a pond down there that was way down the hill through a, an old field that was grown up, is rank is a you've heard that term rank with weeds that's old term old people talk about a, if a place grown up in weeds they gone rank but uh they had a path down there you know they wore were down and he and his brothers would put a hoe across a, the path and um you know they would the geese would head to the pond coming or going they'd be in single file and the first one would trip over the hoe handle and then get up and the next one would wait for him to trip over it they were very ordered they would the next would fall over and get up and wait the next they just waited their turn to they wouldn't go around it they didn't they just each they just uh, fall right over it yeah and they used to hang a ear of corn on a string from a limb and the geese would just sit there all day just pecking at it never getting a ear you know a grain of corn <laughs> off of it but they had they entertained themselves with the geese you know the I'll good Lord didn't make geese the brightest animal. No, my grandpa said he and his brothers had more fun messing with those geese than any animal on the farm. Well, I got some. I got a garden tip for y'all as we uh, get ready to to close out this show. And I figured even Chris would appreciate this. I'm gonna have to. I'm going to have to find a uh, a different place for my garden. Historically, I you know my my neighbor. Uh, it's the the place that we own was his grandfather's. And he told me that when his uncle took it over, he used to garden right up there behind our, uh, on this little hill right up there behind the little house. And so I, I, last five years, I've had my garden out there. That's where the outhouse was? No, even worse. It's where the septic tank is. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, but let me tell you, the stuff grew like weeds out yeah, there. I think Mama Bombeck used to say that the grass is always greener over the septic That's tank. Right. That's right. Well, we had to. We had to, I had them serviced. I hadn't, I hadn't ever had them serviced. And so I decided to have them serviced this last yeah. week. And yeah. mom called me up and she said, I've got some bad news for you. And I said, what's that? And she said, I know why the watermelons grow so well. <laughs> so Which there you go. Me, Chris, uh, uh, I wrote about citrons the other day 
and maybe <laughs> and then mentioned watermelons. Uh, that, that was the and new when people broke new ground and and cleared up a new new field. They always planted watermelons that first year. Uh, had you ever heard that? I have heard that. In fact, there's a good uh, passage in uh, Wiregrass uh, sketch or Saturday Night Sketches Tales from Old Wiregrass, Georgia. The book published in 1918. It even talks about that. Really? So that's an old. I figured it was a very old thing well, what's to do. The, I mean, you plant watermelon anywhere, and then you've got watermelon for thirty years because it. Yeah, uh, this is true. The best water, you know, the best watermelons you'll ever eat is one. Um, you throw an old watermelon out in the edge of a field after you get through eating it. You know what's yeah. left of it. Yeah. And next year, one year with Judy and I were married, we had a, I threw it. We had a big watermelon, ate part of it, threw it over the fence, and next to the cemetery over there in Sandy Land, and. The next year, I happened to be, we were coming home from church one Sunday, and I had to look over the fence over there, and I saw some watermelons, and they had sprouted some wild ones that had grown up out there. Those are the best. And I found other places where you just throw an old watermelon out, go back out there next year, and uh, and, and if that vine sprouted, uh, that's some good watermelons. Unless it's behind my little house. You don't yeah, want it. Don't Those are but when that, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, if it don't kill you, it'll sure fill a bushel basket. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it it didn't it didn't kill me. I I ate a lot of them, but uh, oh my goodness! If it don't kill you, it'll fill a bushel basket. I like that. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come close to the end of the show now. It, it's, it is the end of the show, sadly. Hey, Chris, Listen. though, I, we can't talk about it yet. I guess, but. You're going to be hearing a lot more from Chris. He's got to get things worked out, but you're going to be hearing a lot more from Chris and the Wiregrass and Ecological Project That's, uh, on Georgia Chris, Radio. Listen, if you look at his Ecological Project on, uh, on Facebook, his page, and um, see what he's up to. He's always up to something amazing and educational. I learn something every time I talk to this young man. Chris, it's been a pleasure as always having you on. And uh, uh, my... I, Wife's daddy used to say, make a hundred, make a hundred. That's there what he'd go. always tell you when he started out the door, make a hundred. So do that. Well, it's <laughs> been a pleasure talking with y'all tonight. All right. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Matt. We've uh, appreciate you all listening. And if you're listening live or listening to the podcast later, uh, we thank you for joining us. And thank you. We thank Meeks Brothers Cattle Company. Uh, what a great family and a great uh, product. And uh, we'll see you next time. Georgia Radio. Good company and great country.